you have a Bible, would you turn to Psalm 95? Psalm 95, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 426. And when you found that, would you stand with me and I will read this together as a church. Psalm 95. The author is not listed here, although in Hebrews it ascribes it to David. Let's read together. Psalmist says this, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah as you did that day at Massah in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is God's word. You may be seated. I know, Merry Christmas, right? It, <laughs> it gets, it'll get better. Let me pray for us uh, once again and just ask God's blessing now as we come to His Word. Living God, we come now to what I believe is Your living Word, a Word inspired by Your Spirit, and that is an eternal Word, not some ancient historical document, but a living Word that You want to speak through this morning to each of our hearts. I believe you've brought each person here sovereignly for a purpose, and I'm asking that you would accomplish that purpose in each one of us. You tell us when you send out this word, it does not return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Well, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. I think uh, most of you would agree with me if you're looking around and listening carefully and closely that one of the more pervasive messages given to uh, our kids, our youth, our young people these, in this day and age is that you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. Whatever. If, if you want something badly enough, you just have to put your mind to it, give it everything you've got, and one day... Your, your rainbow is going to come shining through. Uh, there's certainly other places that you can see this, but I, I can't think of anywhere that this theory is more plainly shown to be false than American Idol auditions. It's pretty plainly shown to be false. I mean, I, there's probably something wrong with me, but I think I enjoy that part of the show more than once the contestants are chosen and the real competition begins. If you've seen these auditions, you already know wanting to be a singer badly enough, 
practicing every day, uh, giving hours of your life into this pursuit does not mean that you're going to be the next American Idol. It just, it just doesn't. And maybe, maybe that was always your dream, so if that example hits a little bit too close for you, substitute in something else. Uh, uh, Olympic athletes, Nobel Prize winner, hot dog eating champion, whatever it is, in the end, the overarching reality that American Idol highlights for us every season is that some people are, are gifted to be great in a certain area and some people are not. No matter how much they might want to be or think they are, it's not, it's not a personal thing, it's just the way of the world. But as generally true as that principle might be, there's at least one place where it's not true. One place where every person is gifted with the exact same talent, the exact same ability as the next person. And where you see that universal gifting is in our worship. Now whether you're a Christian or not this morning, that might not be a truth that you've ever considered before. I mean, for most of us, without even thinking about it, we create this unspoken binary in our mind where uh, on the one side, you have religious people. These are people that worship God, uh, statues, trees, whatever. And then over here, you've got everybody else. Uh, I don't know if you've even thought of it that way, but we just create this in our mind. that People who worship, well, those are religious people. And everybody else doesn't worship anything. And yet, the consistent teaching of the Bible... Um, and even what you see in disciplines like uh, psychology and sociology, even if they don't refer to it that way as, as worship, they don't use that term, the reality is that every person who has ever lived, uh, from the very first one to the very last one that ever will be, has a built-in uh, a programming to worship. We all do. Now to worship something, that doesn't necessarily mean you just like it a lot. Worship, by that, I'm talking about something that you ascribe ultimate value and worth to, whatever it is. And if you want to know what that thing is for you, one of the easiest ways to know is to ask yourself one of two diagnostic questions. The first one is this. What is the thing in your life that you feel certain if I were to lose that thing, if it was taken away, my life would lose its meaning? I wouldn't want to go on if I lost that thing. Or, second question you could ask yourself is, what is it that I give the majority of my time, talent, and treasure to? Ask yourself one of those two questions, and you will begin to know, you'll be well on your way to knowing who or what it is that you worship. So what is it for you? I hope you're at least beginning to see when it comes to worship, the question is not, hey, does everybody worship? No, the question is really just, who or what do I worship? That's really the question we need to ask and to answer. Well, we're continuing in this Advent series we began a few weeks ago now, Oh, Come Let Us Adore Him, as was mentioned nearby Tricia, looking each week at the lyrics of some well-known carols and looking at how those same truths are also taught in God's Word. And the aim of this series, as I've said each week, is three parts. It would, it's really that it would help prepare our hearts well for the celebration of Christmas. It would help us to appreciate the, the really deep theology that we're singing when we sing these carols through the Christmas season. And ultimately, as the title of this series suggests, that it would lead us in doing this to come to adore Jesus, either for the first time or simply more than we already do. 
So far we've looked at Hark the Herald Angels Sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And then last Sunday, while shepherds watched their flocks by night, the carol we're looking at this morning is one we already just sang at the end there, O Come, All Ye Faithful, a well-known carol. It's 145 in that green hymnal in front of you, if you want to keep that open as well and have that in front of you. One of the things you might notice uh, as we sang that or as you look through those lyrics, particularly the chorus, is how they mirror that same joyful communal, uh, community kind of calling that we see, the call to worship that we see in Psalm 95. You see, the words are saying, O come all ye faithful, all of us, uh, come let us adore him. It's a, it's a community call. Let's all do this together. And if you grew up uh, listening to uh, Bing Crosby, his classic Christmas album, or maybe more recently, someone like Andrea Bocelli, whatever it is, you may have also heard the Latin words to this hymn, Adeste Fidele. Maybe you've heard this. Uh, uh, the repeated chorus, Venite adoremus, you know, this is what they, they sing. Venite is, the Latin means, O come, O come, venite. What you might not know is that from the 4th century onward, the church has used the words of Psalm 95 as a, as a call and a guide to worship. And referring to this psalm specifically, very simply, as the venite. That's what they called it. But whether you're singing the words of this carol or reciting the words of this psalm, the repeated call of both of them presumes the fact that each and every one of us are worshipers. It presumes it. It doesn't, it doesn't say, hey, if you happen to be a religious person, uh, if you're one of those people who, who worships things, uh, you come. You come and worship. No, no, no. It says, all of you, you are worshipers. I'm inviting you in now to come worship this thing that I'm, I'm showing you, the thing that I'm going to present to you. Come, come and worship. It's a presupposition. You are a worshiper of something, and it's an invitation to come and to worship God. When you think of the Christmas story, if you look particularly at Psalm 95 around verses 6 and 7 there, it kind of brings to mind uh, a lot of what we see in the Christmas story, the, the call of the angels to the shepherds out in the fields, come and, and worship this newborn Savior who's just been born. Or the, the words of the wise men who saw the star and came to King Herod saying, Where is he who has been born, King of the Jews? We have come all together to, to worship him. So as we look at this carol and this psalm together this morning, I want to just show you two things as we look at these things side by side. I want to show you, first of all, the where, why, and how that we should worship. And secondly, I want to look at the restless consequence of misplaced worship. Okay? Where, why, and how we should worship, and the restless consequence of misplaced worship. I know that sounds like four points, it's really just two. And I think that second point in particular is going to be very significant for us this morning because, beginning with the presupposition, again, we, we are all worshipers. The psalmist is calling us to direct our worship to God and building a case as to why he's saying we should do that. But the second half of the psalm, as you saw there, it brings up this particular example from the history of Israel. And in doing that, it presents a warning to us. 
It's going to warn us that where it is that we choose to direct our worship is not subjective. It's not this arbitrary choice that, you know, hey, hey, worship of God, that, that's a great place to direct your worship. But, you know, there's other places as well that would be equally good. No, no, it's not saying that. Instead, the psalmist is going to make a very exclusive claim. Namely, directing our worship to the one who made us, to the one who made all things, that it, worship directed toward him results in rest. It results in, in this thing he's saying is called rest, both in this life as well as in the next, and that worship directed anywhere else to any other thing can't offer us that rest. It can't do it. Now, maybe you'd want to argue that the psalmist is mistaken about those exclusive claims. Or maybe you just want to say that he's wrong. But considering the consequence that he lists for this misplaced worship, I think it's worth at least investigating the psalmist's claim, checking it out to see whether or not does his claim at least have warrant. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them up again? Keep them open with me, looking at Psalm 95, and follow along as we look at the Bible's call to come and worship this king of angels. So let's look first of all at where, why, and how we should worship. Where, why, and how we should worship. Now, if you're a fan of Simon Sinek, who won't uh, start with why, you might be a little bit uh, irked by the fact that I'm beginning with where we should direct our worship before I come to why, but there's method to the madness if you really think that's madness, so bear with me for a moment. But when we come to where it is we should direct our worship, this can be a bit tricky to determine at first from the psalm because it seems like the psalmist is, is telling us to worship in all kinds of different places. And the reality is they're actually all one in the same place. So we see the one to whom we're directed to work our worship and ascribe ultimate worth and value in verse 1. Look with me there. The psalmist says, We are to come venite, there's that, Venite, all come, he says, and sing for joy to the Lord. Sing for joy to the Lord. Now, maybe you don't know that whenever the Bible uh, capitalizes all the letters of the, the name Lord, it's referring to a specific name. It's referring to the name that God gave to Moses from the bush uh, out in the desert. Uh, Yahweh, it's referring to the I Am name, God's name that he said I am to be remembered by for all time. That's how the Bible signifies that when it puts the, the letters in all caps like that. So this is the name that God had given to Moses. And, what, and so he's saying to the Lord, to Yahweh, to I am. That's where we are to come and bring our worship. And then all these other names that he gives, uh, rock of our salvation, uh, the great God and king above all gods, our maker. These are descriptions, his descriptions of the Lord. That's how he's describing him. So it really is just to one place that he's directing us to bring our worship. But without even a pinch of irreverence, I just want to ask you, at this point in the development of the psalmist's claim, I think we'd all still have to say, okay, so what? You're saying, I should worship this, I want to worship this. What, 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 how is that different than any other advertiser who's saying, you should buy my product? I mean, why? Why? Okay, well, helpfully, the psalmist gives us some answers here. Look at uh, verse 3 and then verse 7. You see in both of those places, he begins each of them, those sections, by saying, For, 
on and on, which means he's now going to explain why. He's going to reveal the why of his claim. And in verse 3, twice he uses the word great. Great. He says he is a great God and then the great king above all gods, which in the Hebrew doesn't just mean, hey, really, really good. In, in the Hebrew, to call him the great God means that he is remarkable, that he is out of the ordinary, that he is unique from all other things. So what's so remarkable about him? Okay, let's see. Look, first of all, at verses 4 and 5. He says, In his hand are the depths of the earth. The mountain peaks belong to him. Verse 5, The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. The psalmist, the psalmist here is using a, a literary device. We've talked about a number of times, if you've been here for any length of time, called synecdoche. I just like saying that word, synecdoche, where you take one part of an object and you highlight that to talk about something else in its fullness. So when I talk about tickling the ivories, I don't, I'm not talking about piano keys floating in the air. I'm talking about a whole piano. I play the whole piano. This is what he's doing. He's using different pieces to highlight the whole of creation. So the first thing the psalmist is saying as a warrant to his why we should worship, why we should direct our worship to God, he's basically saying, just look around you. Just look around everywhere you could look. Everything from, from the deepest depths you could dig down to find to the highest mountain peak you could climb from, from the seas to the dry ground, everything below and above and on them. God made all that, and it belongs to Him. That's why you should come and adore Him. And then, before we even have time to be like, wow, that's a lot, He hits us again, verse 6. Look, he says, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Our maker. So here the psalmist's claim is that God didn't just make heaven and earth and everything in them. He made us. You, me, every person that's ever lived. He is the Lord, our maker. He made us. And much more than just a divine watchmaker who... who winds us up and winds up creation and then sits back to just see how it's all going to work out. No, verse 7 there tells us he's actively involved in our lives, leading us and guiding us like a shepherd with his sheep. We'll dig into this more in a few minutes, but one of the things we can draw out of that section of the story from Israel, verses 8 through 11, is that our Maker, who leads us and guides us like a shepherd, has a place of rest that he's bringing us to, a place of, of safety that he's bringing us towards, which tells us at least the character of this God is not menacing and capricious. It is loving and good. He longs to bring us to a place of rest. Now, as incredible as that description sounds, as he gives us this why we should worship this Lord, these are still at this point in time, these are just claims he's making. Right? These are campaign promises. He hasn't uh, labored yet to bring us any evidence uh, of these claims, but I think we'd have to admit this much at least. If these claims are accurate, if what he just said about this God is true, okay, well then I think we would say uh, undoubtedly he's worthy of our worship, right? Finally, the psalmist gives us some specific examples of how we should worship. 
How we should worship this God that he's presented is so worthy. And I say examples because while we certainly can worship God in these ways that he lists here, for every description of worship that we have in Psalm 95, we have other counterexamples in other psalms and other scriptures that give us different ways to worship. So we can. Yeah, we can worship God with music, songs of joy. We can also worship him with sighs and groanings in prayer. We can worship him with loud shouts of praise or with silence. We can worship him with kneeling, prostrating ourselves before him, or with dancing and leaping. There's no end to the number of ways that we can worship this God that he says is so worthy of our praise. But at the end of the day, I think the psalmist's ultimate focus in each of those three places, his ultimate focus is where where we should direct our worship. Because if you just scale back for a minute, and it's not talking about worship anymore, just talking about love and affection. How do you demonstrate love for your spouse or or a close friend? How, How do you do it? Or why do you express the affection that you have for your pet? The answers to those questions, they're going to be as as varied as the people you ask. There's all kinds of different reasons. So my question for you to consider this morning, in light of all that we've just looked at here, is think in your own heart. Where do I direct my worship? Take a moment to consider that in your own heart. Where do I direct my worship? To whom do I ascribe ultimate value and worth? Where? Where is it? First thing I want to say as you consider that is, okay, yeah, I get it. We're in a church right now. And uh, maybe all of your knee-jerk response is going to be, God, oh, I worship God. That's who I worship. And I, I would say, great. That's great. So do I. Uh, yeah. But I'd also want to quickly add, but I know that's not always true in my life. Uh, uh, that's not always. God is not always the one who I ascribe ultimate value and worth to if I'm honest. No, when I apply that same diagnostic test from time to time in my life of seeing where it is I put the majority of effort of time, talent, and treasure, I've found at times, there's absolutely been times in my life where although I was saying that God is the one I worship, the reality is I was ascribing ultimate value and worth all kinds of different places. My wife, my kids, all, all times, myself, always myself. That's really where I invest most heavily with my worship so often. That's not to say that in those times uh, I, I was not a Christian or I lost my salvation. It was simply to say that I had misdirected worship that was due to God. I needed to repent of those things and redirect that worship back to Him. But that's me. Uh, I'm asking you that question now this morning. Where, where do you direct your worship. Maybe later today, and and honestly, from time to time in your life, it's so worth doing this. Give yourself that test. Give yourself that diagnostic test. Where do I direct the majority of my time, my talent, or my treasure? Those things reveal what's of most value in your life. And if it's not God, then reorient. He is a gracious God. He's not sitting there with his arms crossed. He's he's there longing for you to come back. 
And he will receive you when you do. The other thing I want you to consider this morning is that and we're talking about this question of where you direct your worship is. If maybe you're here this morning and you're just new to this whole Christianity thing, this whole religion, and you're just here this morning checking this out, I would say that, that, that's great and I'm glad you're here. And, but maybe you'd say, okay, I know God isn't the one I worship. Not right now anyway, that's not where I'm at. And I would say, okay, let me ask you then. Who do you worship then? Where do you direct your worship? And when you think about that, would you say that it's truly greater than this God the psalmist just described? Is what you worship truly of more value than this God who the psalmist just described? And and is what you worship, can it sustain the full weight of your expectation and not crush it in the way that God can absolutely sustain all the weight of your expectation? My point to you is simply to say, don't fall for the fantasy of believing that if, you don't, if you're not a religious person who worships God, you're not worshiping anything. Yes, you are. You're absolutely worshiping something. And if you don't know what it is, well, that's a little bit like uh, someone stealing your credit card and access to your online calendar. But then you just keep paying the credit card balance every month and showing up for whatever appointments are scheduled. You're worshiping in ignorance, but you are worshiping something. So my advice to you, my call to you would be consider. Take that time to give yourself that diagnostic test. Where where do I invest the most of my time, talent, and treasure? And when you've discovered what it is that you do worship, hold it up against the the claims of who this God, the psalmist just described, is. And and ask yourself, is, is what I worship right now truly of more value than that. Okay, so that's where, why, and how we should worship. Last thing I want to look at with you this morning is the restless consequence for misplaced worship. The restless consequence for misplaced worship. And we need to look at this because if the Bible is right... When it comes to the subject of where you direct your worship, as we said this morning, we're not looking at a better best comparison. We're not looking at that as though worship of anything is good, but worship to God is best. No, we're looking at an either or comparison. Where worship directed toward God brings about rest, and worship directed anywhere else does not. That's the claim the psalmist is making here. And you see this when you look at the second half of verse 7 through verse 11. Honestly, as we were reading, I could see it on your faces even. It seems like a misplaced part in the psalm. Like just, this part of the psalm just wandered into the wrong bathroom. It's sort of like, what? Am I in a, oh, wrong place. It seems like it's misplaced. It seems like it has nothing to do with worship when I believe it has everything to do with worship. Look with me again at this section. The second half of verse 7. Through verse 11, Psalmist says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. Now, the very first thing to say and point out is, did you notice how the tense 
shifted from the third person to the first person. He, he's moved from saying, let us come before him. Uh, the sea is his. He made it. To suddenly, verse 9, he says, where your fathers tested and tried me. For 40 years, I was angry. Do you see... Uh, all of a sudden, this is no longer the psalmist's voice speaking, but God himself, his voice is now talking. And he's saying, hey, I want to bring up uh, something that's going to remind you uh, of a problem that I had. And in the context of this call to worship, the example that God brings up here is from the Exodus, when the people were, were coming out of slavery in Egypt. So we can see it recorded in Exodus 17. This is where God had just, literally just, freed the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he had just, they had literally just stepped off, uh, out of the Red Sea that had been parted so they could walk across on dry land to escape the pursuing Egyptian army. And then the sea comes back, it swallows up the whole army so they can't pursue them anymore. They've just been freed. And yet, Although they've just watched all this happen with their own eyes, they've seen firsthand that the Lord truly is the great God and King above all gods. That's what God means in verse 9b when he says, they saw what I did. They were, they were there. They just watched it. Still, they argued against God and tested him the second things weren't going the way that they hoped they would. That's what the terms Meribah and Massah mean. They mean quarreling and testing. So, uh, the people are hungry. They, they've just been traveling. They're hungry. But rather than saying, well, look what God just did to rescue us. Obviously, he can provide food for us. Instead, they complained to Moses saying, what, did God just bring us out in the desert to starve? At least in Egypt we had food. Or... Uh, the people are thirsty. And rather than saying, now look at God's power over water. Look what he can do. Obviously, he can satisfy our need and our thirst. Instead, they say, well, is God with us or not? We're thirsty. But when God brings Israel right up to the edges of the promised land, this place of rest that he's bringing them towards, rest from fear, rest from wandering in the desert that he's longing to give to them, rather than saying, man, who cares how big the Canaanites are. Look at what God did to the Egyptian army. Instead, they rebel against God and Moses and will not enter into the land. So although that people of Israel, they might say God is the one that they're worshiping, the one that they're trusting, and it's clear. Their worship and their trust is truly somewhere else. Or it's so fickle. In most cases... Their trust and their worship just happens to be in whoever's supplying their needs at the moment. God's supplying my needs, okay, I worship you. Uh, uh, this golden calf is supplying my needs, okay, now I worship you. It's all centered around meeting my needs and giving me what I feel like I need in the moment. But if the whole purpose of whatever God you say you worship is about serving whatever needs you might happen to have in a given moment, honestly, ask yourself, who is it that's truly being worshipped? What's truly of ultimate value and worth in that arrangement? Isn't it you? What we can draw from this, first of all, is that true worship 
directed towards God is not only a matter of words and performing actions. It's not you saying, I love God. It's not you showing up for church every Sunday alone. It's also a matter of the heart, a matter of the affections. That's why God describes misplaced worship in verse 10 there as a people whose hearts go astray. For later in the New Testament, Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah and his condemnation of Israel, stating, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And the consequences, the consequence for this misplaced, misdirected worship, we see in verse 11, it's a failure to enter into God's rest. That's the consequence for misplaced, misdirected worship. Now, don't miss this because it's easy to get confused in this moment. This consequence for Israel's misplaced worship, not entering into God's rest, is not necessarily a judgment from God as much as it is the natural consequence of seeking to find rest, seeking to find their rest in something or someone other than God. Which is why I said a minute ago, where you direct your worship is not a better, best comparison. It's not God sitting there saying, okay, you want to go over there? I mean, those, those places over there, that's not as restful as the one I provided. No, God is saying, there is no rest apart from me. You're not going to find it in worship of anything else. So it's just a natural consequence. Failure to worship him results in not entering into his rest. He's saying, apart from acknowledging your inability to rescue yourself and placing your hope and trust in me alone, anything else you worship, anything else you give ultimate value to, seek to find your rest in, will only leave you continuing to wander in the desert. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, all that we call human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Now in this context here, rest, the rest that Israel failed to enter was the promised land. They, they didn't get to go into this physical place. But picking up on this exact same theme in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews tells us that there's another rest that, that we too can enter into. And he comes to that conclusion from that little word, the second half of verse 7. Look there with me. The word today. See there the psalmist says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And in Hebrews chapter 4, listen to what the author of Hebrews says here. He says, It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today. When a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Listen, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua is the one that led the people of Israel into this physical promised land. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. This psalm, Psalm 95, was written hundreds of years after they'd already entered into the promised land. Verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, 
just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Do you see his point? He's saying if, if God's rest was just about Joshua leading those people into a physical place, the promised land, it would make no sense. Hundreds of years later, for God, speaking through the prophet, to say, today, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like the people of Israel did, and miss out on the rest God has for you today. So it means there must be a a greater rest, a superior rest to which we enter in than a physical promised land. There must be something more that that promised land was simply pointing us to, pointing ahead to. What is that other rest? What is it? What is the rest that Hebrews is talking about? I think it's there in verse 10. He says, For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his Work, so it, the rest God gives us is rest from our working. Okay, working for what? Working to find rest. We rest from working to find rest, to find peace. Peace from our wanderings, to find fulfillment in our lives. We rest from that, which is what every other person or thing that you worship or you give ultimate value to is seeking to find. You're seeking to find that rest in something, you're seeking to find that peace somewhere, and yet over and over again, eventually, those things that we worship that promise to give us rest, that promise to give us fulfillment, they fail, they break. They don't give us the rest and fulfillment that they promised. So, it's only in believing the gospel It's only in believing the good news of what God did in sending Jesus to earth, freeing us from our slavery to sin, that we truly find rest. Why? Because Jesus' work on the cross, His working for us, is fully sufficient to save us and secure our entry into God's rest. He's the one that secures our entry into that rest, so we don't have to work for it anymore. And when we see what He's accomplished for us, and our hearts are softened to believe in Him, then we truly worship Him from the heart. We worship Him from the heart, not to earn our access into God's rest, but because in Jesus, He's already accomplished that access for us. Oh, come, venite adoramos. Come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, come ye to Bethlehem. The venite of Psalm 95 and of that carol all point us to the message of Christmas. Like the angels lifting up or lighting up the sky outside Bethlehem, appearing to the shepherds, that the star over the stable in Bethlehem, calling to the wise men, all of them together, calling us to worship this great God and King over all gods, now in flesh appearing. Come as a tiny baby, not simply to dwell among us, but to work on our behalf and to lead all who worship Him from the heart to find the rest in Him that's only available in Him. 
Because you see, this same Jesus, before completing his work on earth, he spoke his own venite to all who would hear his voice, saying this, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and burdened. All you who are working so hard right now to find rest in all these places that won't give it to you. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. I'll give it to you. It's right here, and it's only available in me. Today, if you hear his voice, come. Let us adore him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning. We come to worship you together as a church family because you are worthy of it. That we try so often to find rest in other places. And each time when we take worship that belongs to you and seek to find that rest somewhere else, we're always disappointed. Forgive us, God. Thank you that you are a gracious Father who will receive us back from our wanderings, although our hearts do wander from you. As the psalm says, or as the hymn says, sorry, we, we are so prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. You welcome us back. You're always ready to receive us and to receive our worship once again and to offer us the rest that is only available in you. May we know it today and in this coming week, and would you remind us often to assess, to, to think, where am I directing my worship? May it always be in you alone. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.